2 Corinthians 4, and we're going to read in the beginning of verse 3 tonight, and through verse 12. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 3, it's a privilege to serve you the Word of God in your life. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bond servants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So that death is working in us of life indeed. Going to focus in on verse 7, but I want you to read the immediate context. And the epistle of 2 Corinthians is the testimony of a faithful, born again disciple of Jesus who worshiped God, who walked with God, who worked with God, and who reproduced much fruit of the glory of God. It is an inspiring goal and ambition for every authentic disciple of Jesus to press the Lord. Because this is the godly example of a man, flesh and blood man. Just like you and I, who faithfully followed the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is all breathed out by God. It is all profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But simultaneously, on a human level, this is the Apostle Paul's defense of both his character and his gospel ministry for this church at Corinth. You've been studying 1 Corinthians for quite a while, and you know that the Apostle Paul had invested his toil and tears 
into the founding of his church. Of course, he, he fed them through the word. He led them through the example of his life as it was lived out among them and before them. But in his absence, false teachers, wolves, slithered into this church at Corinth, and these pseudo-apostles were preaching another Jesus, another gospel. And they were seeking to steal the position of leadership in that church, and they planned on doing it by attacking Paul's church, offering his ministry by coming back. And their false teaching and their attempts to uh, throw Paul out of the position of authority and leadership in this church had created a mutiny within this local church. The church had become defiled morally, it had become contaminated doctrinally with all of the false teaching of these pseudo-apostles, but God always corrects born again believers. He's always faithful to discipline each young ones. And the epistle to the church at Corinth, the first of that epistle, is a letter of correction. Oh, but there was another letter that is not in the canon of the church. It was called the severe letter. God corrected is born again young. And by the time Paul writes this second letter, most of the Corinthians had repented of their doctrinal and moral defilement. But there was still a remnant in the church that had not repented. False apostles were working in the shadows. And so as he writes his second epistle to the church at Corinth, he faces a tremendous dilemma. For on the one hand, he must defend his character and his gospel ministry before the Corinthian church, but at the same time, he has no appearance of God. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he accomplishes his twofold purpose in a marvelous manner. And we're going to look just at a little portion of this letter to the church of Lord, this second letter. And in this passage, there are three very practical truths that we want to not only apprehend from the text, but apply to our lives. So we're going to look tonight at the glorious spiritual reality of the treasure as contrasted to the I want you to see three truths tonight. First of all, first of all, in verse 7, that's where we're mainly focusing. Notice I call it the exhibition of the treasure. But Paul says, but we, speaking the morning the disciples, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Every bona fide follower of Jesus is a receptacle of an infinitely precious treasure. 
Now, you say, brother, hey, what is this price? What is this price for the jewel that Paul is defining? Well, if you study the context there, I believe that there are actually two aspects of this extravagant treasure. When Paul says, we have this treasure, first of all, he's speaking of the message of life concerning the Lord Jesus. Did you see that in verse 6? For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Now that's the first creation, the physical creation. But there was darkness, like the beast, and the boy, and the harmlessness. But God said, Let there be light. And the new creation. Notice what he says. For it is the God who created life to shine out of darkness in the physical creation, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the God. in the glorious gospel. The message of life concerning the Lord Jesus, the incredible reality that the Creator of the universe has ordained the glorious salvation plan by which rebel sinners can be reconciled to God. can be rescued from the penalty of sin, they can be redeemed from the power of sin, they can be restored to fulfill the purpose for which they were created. The astounding truth that God was manifest. God of pristine holiness. God of impossible justice. Nothing of holiness and justice. Not because they're worthy of his love, not because they're wonderful, but because God is love. Then, that's not all the truth. You take part of it with God is love, and you make it all the way that part of it is the untruth. God is love, and that would be six of one. God is life to never at the expense of love. God is a God, we say tonight, who is holy, 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 and he says, it is love. Holy It's not only how many verses after God so loved the the wrath of God over the sin. I say the wrath of God lies over the sin. It says the just animosity and holy hostility of God abides over the unconverted sinner waiting to fall. God is a God of pristine holiness 
and inflexible justice. He has a holy purpose to judge and punish not only sin, unconverted sin. Have you ever heard a preacher say, God loves a sin? Why does he just sin with sin? No, he has a holy, just hostility, a wrath fixed against the unconverted sinner. And yet, this God has come to seek and to save lost sinners. The sovereign God who exists above time and space has taken on the form of a man, even the form of a servant. He lived a perfectly righteous life, tempted in all points like we are tempted, but without sin. The lamb without blemish, without spot, and on the Jewish Passover right on time, he marched up to the cross and presented himself to the Father, not only as the great high priest, but as the Lamb of God. Not only as the offerer of the sacrifice, but the very offering itself. And we heard yesterday there was that supernatural blackness of darkness for three hours. And during those hours, listen dear friends, it pleased Jehovah God the Father to crush Jehovah God the Son in the place of and on behalf of any sinner, even agnostic drummer, who will come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Accursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law, but three verses later, the scripture says, Christ became a curse for repenting and believing sinners. God did not sweep the sins of his people under the rug of the universe. He judged the sins of his people in his son. And on the third day he triumphantly rose from the dead so that any repenting and believing sinner could be justified before this God of pristine holiness and inflexible justice all of the wrath I deserved imputed to my Savior's account. His perfect righteousness imputed to my account. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And dear friends, we have this treasure. God has illuminated my mind with this glorious Treasure and the greatest privilege in all the world is to be a recipient of this treasure. And if you're born of God, if you've entered the narrow gate, not only have you been graced to be a recipient of this treasure, you are called to be faithful to dispense this treasure to those around you. 
You have been called to fervently serve the unconverted people around you by taking opportunities and making opportunities to proclaim to them the bad news of their terrible problem before this God of pristine holiness. And then the good news of God's tremendous provision in the gospel. And then to call them to repent and believe the gospel. The Lord who went to Calvary is calling every one of his followers to be faithful in taking opportunities and making opportunities to dispense the message of light concerning Jesus. Andrew Murray, the Dutch reform missionary and prolific author, said there's two types of Christians, soul winners and backsliders. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest Baptist preacher who ever walked on this planet, said you're either a missionary, and he means a local witness wherever you are, you're either a missionary or an imposter. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church many years ago, says to the believer, you have only one business, the salvation of souls. David Brainerd was the Presbyterian missionary to the American Indians long ago. He said, I care not where or how I live or what hardships I'm called upon to endure just so I gain souls for Christ. There was a great awakening in our nation long ago how we need one today. George Whitfield was one of the preachers in that great awakening. He said, God forbid that I should talk to anyone for 15 minutes without proclaiming the gospel to them. But more important than these mere men, my Lord and Savior says, follow me. And when you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Are you following him? You know, there's whole lots of Baptists. I've been at 800 of these churches. And there's a whole lot of Baptist folks who are following church. But they're not necessarily following Jesus. You can follow all the activities of First Baptist Jonesboro. You can be at every Sunday school, every service, every fellowship. You can even show up at a revival meeting to hear a pitiful preacher from Mobile and not be following Jesus at all. But when you follow Jesus, he will make you a fisher. Not of fish, but of men. I'm submitting to you that this passion and purpose to dispense the treasure concerning the Lord Jesus is a reality that flows out of an intimate union with Jesus. If you've been reconciled to God, you are a minister of reconciliation. That's the next chapter. And Paul's not writing to a seminary. He's writing to a local church. He says, if you've been reconciled, you are a minister of reconciliation. If you have peace with God through the blood of the cross, you are an ambassador for Christ to go out within your sphere of influence and to proclaim the message of peace and the terms of peace 
will all of those around you who are still enemies of God. Follow me, and I'll give you a desire and a determination to dispense the message of light concerning the Lord Jesus. I prayed for my dad's soul for 26 years after I was converted. He was not a born-again believer. He'd come to meetings if I preached near where he lived, but he was not a follower of Jesus. But at 78 years of age, God put him in ICU with an aortic aneurysm and acute pancreatitis. I canceled the meeting where I was. I made it to that emergency room and in in there when the two specialists had just walked out and said, Mr. Lacey, you have this uh, aortic aneurysm. It could explode at any moment. We don't know if we could save you, but we cannot operate for two weeks because the pancreatitis is so bad that if we operated, it would poison you and kill you. So you've got to lay here for two weeks. But we want you to know you could die at any moment. When they walked out, I walked in. And I walked in one more time with a gospel track to witness to my dad. Talked to him as long as they'd let me stay in that ICU and they kicked me out. I left that track with him and if you'll read it, it's full of truth. I urged him to read it the next morning when I got in there as soon as they let me in. He said, son, I read through it twice. And through that day, I was planting gospel seed in the heart of my dad. And the next morning, on the second morning, when they let me back into ICU, tears were flowing down his face. And he started the conversation. He said, son, you don't know how many times I would come to hear you preach. And it would appear in my heart that I'd walk right up to the door. That's how he put it in his own language. I'd walk up to the door, but I wouldn't walk through. But he said, son, I know I've walked through. I know what you've been talking about all these years. I know him. And for the next two weeks when people would come into his room, he'd start testifying about what had happened to him. Well, he had that operation. And over the next 10 weeks, he was slowly dying, never got out of the hospital. The last thing I saw him do, he was still conscious, but he had that tube in his throat. He couldn't speak, but he's laying there the next day. He's going to die. He's conscious. And I'm standing over his bed with my wife, Diane. He pulls that same track out of my pocket and starts turning through it. I said, Dad, you want me to read it to you again? He went. I said, Dad, what do you want? Diane says, Papa, what do you want? He pointed to the ICU nurse. I said, do you want me to witness to her? That's the last thing I saw him do. He couldn't even speak. But he had a desire to share the message of light 
about the Lord Jesus. Dear friends, a saving union, a saving knowledge of Jesus is inseparably associated with a passion and a purpose to make opportunities and take opportunities to proclaim the message of light concerning Jesus. If Jesus died to redeem souls, we live to reach souls. And listen, a theology that does not produce a passion and purpose to be on mission with God is not a biblical theology. A church that has no desire and determination to be actively on mission with God, I don't know what it is, but it's not a New Testament church. And a professing born-again believer that has never had a passion and purpose to be on mission with God should certainly examine themselves. When Paul says we have this treasure, he's speaking of the message of light concerning the Lord Jesus. Oh, but I believe there's more there. Not only is he speaking of the message of light concerning the Lord Jesus, but the manifestation of the life of Jesus in an earthen vessel. Notice verse 10 always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, notices that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For, for, for we who live, we who are born twice, we who are converted, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Oh, friends, God shines the light of the glorious gospel on a sin-blinded mind so that his glory might be displayed through the life of that person who's been converted. Yes, our lives telling the truth about Jesus. Not only our lips proclaiming the glorious gospel, but our very lives telling the truth about Jesus, bearing a growing family resemblance to the Lord Jesus. That's why 1 John 2, 6 says, he who says, he's got to talk, that he abides in Jesus, ought himself to walk, even in the same manner as Jesus walked. So the treasure is not only dispensing the message of light, but displaying the manifestation of the very life of Jesus in an earthen vessel. Now, how would Jesus' life be made manifest in a bona fide disciple who's a member of First Baptist Jonesboro, Louisiana. Well, notice verse 5. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, here's what I want you to see, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. The life of Jesus is manifested in us as we humble ourselves, as we forget about ourselves and take on the position of a loving servant in the local body of Christ. 
Listen to uh, God speaking to every authentic disciple of Jesus in this room tonight in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, let this same mind, this disposition of thinking, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a, same Greek word, bondservant. Let this mind be in you, this disposition of a bondservant. Let others at First Baptist Church see you humbling yourself and exalting Jesus. And taking the position of a loving servant of other disciples of Jesus. Now, so many times inside Baptist churches, we see the exact opposite occurring among those who call themselves followers of Jesus. Instead of making themselves of no reputation, they're attempting to make a reputation for themselves. Instead of walking in step with the Spirit as a humble servant of others, they're seeking to be served by others. Instead of repudiating themselves, taking up their cross of voluntary sacrifice and service and even suffering for the evangelism of the lost and the edification of the body, they're focusing on their own comforts, their own carnal conveniences, their own petty preferences. All but the manifestation of the life of Jesus becomes a living reality when we crown Jesus as Lord of our lives, humble ourselves, delight in Him, exalt in Him as the center of our universe, and take the position of a servant of the Lord and the local body of Christ. What are you saying, Brother Ed? If you're converted... There is a treasure to be revealed in you. Not only as you dispense the message, but as you display the servant life of Jesus. I ask you tonight, did you receive Jesus so that he could be your servant? Or did you receive Jesus so that you could be his servant? And ourselves, your bond slaves. The, the, the word there, oh, the King James writers, they, they tried to tone it down, you know, kind of, kind of water it down a little bit. Uh, but the word is slave. That's the word. And a born-again believer is called a slave of Jesus 120 times in the New Testament. You know how many times they're called a Christian? Three times. And they're called a disciple 256 times. The born-again follower of Jesus is the slave of Jesus Christ. Now, remember the context in which Paul's writing. There were approximately 10 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And they were from every race, 
many nations and cultures, they were slaves of the Roman Empire. Now imagine with me that a master slave owner comes to a slave market in the city of Rome, but this particular master is coming to buy a slave with loving, gracious, merciful purposes in mind. The master comes to the slave market and he selects a slave for himself. And he purchases that slave. He pays the appropriate price to the slave. But he does all this with amazing and astounding, gracious, merciful purposes in his heart and mind. So that slave, out of, out of thanksgiving, out of gratitude for the master who bought him, that slave would go out into the master's fields and work all day. Then he would come in in the evening and prepare a meal for his master and wait on his master's table before having anything for himself. And he did it all without debate, without complaint, without murmuring. For this was not his begrudging duty. This was his blessed delight to serve his master. I've been to 20 different nations, but in reality, I've come to see there's only two kingdoms on this planet. The kingdom of sin and the kingdom of God's dear son. Only two kingdoms, only two masters on this planet. The master called sin, the tyranny of sin, and the master called the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody in this room is a slave of one of those two masters. Everybody here is a slave. The only issue is, whose slave are you? For 29 years, I was a slave of the master called sin. I was living under the tyranny of sin. And listen, you can be on a church pew and be under the tyranny of sin. Doesn't matter if you're on a bar stool or a church pew. Before you're born of God, you are a slave to the master called sin. Sin. Oh, but when a person is converted, when they are redeemed, they are transferred out of the tyranny of sin, out of the kingdom of sin and death, and they are ushered into the kingdom of God's dear Son. If that's happened to you, you're not your own. You have been bought at a price. Therefore, glorify. By God in your body and your spirit. By dispensing the message of light concerning the Lord Jesus and manifesting by the grace of God and the spirit of God the very life of Jesus in the manner in which you serve other brothers and sisters. That's my first point. Second two will be much quicker. The exhibition of the treasure. But let's look for a few moments at the expendability of the vessel. And if you're not mad at me yet, you're going to get mad at me here. But that's all right. You still have to love me. Notice the expendability of the vessel. But Verse 7. But we have this treasure 
in earthen vessels. The picture there is a fragile jar of clay, a common earthenware pot, which was not attractive. It was not visibly appealing. As a matter of fact, it was quite homely and ugly. Uh, this clay pot has no intrinsic value in and of itself. A clay pot would have been easily breakable and expendable. As a matter of fact, if you could bring it into today's terminology, it would be like that disposable bottle on the front pew. God has put a treasure in a disposable bottle. Yeah, that's it. Now, in Paul's day, there were brass and copper pots. They were very valuable. They had intrinsic worth. They were extremely useful. You could use them time and time and time again. Oh, but a clay pot? The only value a clay pot could possibly have would be derived from what it contained. Now, sometimes a clay pot was used for noble purposes. Sometimes it was used to, as a vault to store valuable documents or a vault to store uh, gold, silver, jewels. But most of the time, a clay pot was used for the most menial, the lowest of purposes. There was no garbage men coming by back in Paul's day. A clay pot was usually used as a garbage pail. Or even worse. That's what you've been looking at since yesterday morning. That's what I was. A garbage pail. Infected and corrupted with all the wickedness of this world system for 29 years. Oh, but one night at 3 o'clock in the morning through a tape delay television preacher, the gospel came to me not in word only, but a demonstration of Holy Spirit power and deep conviction. And God put a treasure in a garbage pail. Who would put a treasure in a garbage pail? Well, God did. And that's precisely what Paul is saying. No, he was not an agnostic drummer. He was a lost religionist. Up to his eyeballs in ritualistic religion. But his supreme ambition was to slaughter the infant church of Jesus poisoned with self-righteousness and all of his rules and regulations, lost and on the same road to hell as this drummer was. But God, according to the good pleasure of his will, but God, according to his amazing grace and marvelous mercy, placed an infinitely precious, priceless treasure in a disposable clay pot. What is God up to? What is his purpose when he places his eternal treasure in worthless and useless 
garbage pail. Well, brother Ed, I'll have you know I'm no garbage pail. You need to get lost so you can get saved. You don't get saved until you see yourself lost. By seeking and saving worthless and useless garbage pails and placing his eternal treasure within them, he clearly displays the last point tonight, the excellence of his power. God has put a treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. This is why God employs feeble and fragile clay pots both to display and to dispense His treasure so that the gospel soul-saving evidences and life-transforming effects may be clearly and only and always seen as a miraculous work of God and never a work of man. And if you've been called by more than a call of a preacher to the ears, but you've been called with a heavenly calling that resurrected your spiritually dead heart. If you have been called, if you are now a follower of Jesus, you're to be fishing for men. That's what he's saying. And if your witness proves to be successful in the conversion of a soul, it's never because of your human wisdom or human ability. It's never because of any new technique or tactic that comes down from the Southern Baptist Convention. It's never because of any human methods or manipulation. It's never because of the originality of your presentation. It is never because of human persuasiveness or communication skills. It is always because the Spirit of God has taken the gospel of God resurrected a dead sinner. Why has God made it this way? So that he'll get all the glory. And we won't become guilty of attempting to rob him of his glory. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1. You studied that a few years ago probably. 1 Corinthians 1. For you see your calling, brethren. He's not talking about a call to the ears there. He's talking about a supernatural miraculous call of grace to the heart. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen, here I am, the foolish things of the world to put to the shame the wise. And God has chosen, here I am again, the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen, why? So that no flesh should glory in his presence. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Amen? What can a clay pot do in the spiritual realm? Well, it can only do two things. Receive and pour forth. 
That's all it can do. So no glory should ever be given to a garbage pail. Have you ever given glory to a garbage pail? No, God has all the life-transforming, soul-saving powers, so God should get all the glory. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. We should say, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to Your name be glory. Now, I'm going to read a verse from 2 Timothy, and we're going to close. Because you may be sitting there thinking, well, if we're nothing but clay pots, then what is our responsibility? We just sit here on our blessed assurance and passivity and negligence and apathy, waiting for God to zap us with spiritual lightning? No. As clay pots, if you're a born-again clay pot, you have responsibility. And we find it in 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honor and some for dishonor. Here's what I want you to see. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. What's our responsibility at First Baptist Jonesboro? Get clean. And notice he says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself. He did not say sit around in negligence, apathy, complacency, waiting to, for God to zap us and then he'll cleanse us. No. If you're born again, you're responsible to get clean. You already have everything you need to get clean. You have the Word of God. If you're converted, you have the Holy Spirit. You have pastor teachers to equip you for the work of the ministry. You are responsible to get clean. Paul writes to this same church in a couple of past, a couple of chapters later, and he says, "Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness." In the fear of the Lord. Get clean. But that's not all. We're to be consecrated. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of the latter, he will be a vessel of honor. Here's my word. Sanctified. Which means not only are we responsible to set ourselves apart from what our flesh's agendas would be, we are personally responsible to set ourselves apart unto God's agendas for our life. Paul is using Old Testament typology here, symbolism taken from Old Testament temple worship. The vessels that were used in Old Testament temple worship were just common vessels in and of themselves. There was nothing special about those vessels, Brother Brian, until the high priest cleansed them and consecrated them for temple worship. You know what they were called then? Holy vessels. 
if the great high priest has converted you, that means he has cleansed you and you are to be consecrated, setting yourself apart unto his agendas for your life. Clean, consecrated, and I close, I promise, committed. Useful for the master. Prepared for every good work. There it is. We're to be ready to be used. Willing to be used. Praying to be used. If you haven't equipped yourself, equip yourself to be used in this great mission of evangelism. Lord, I'm placing the totality of my life at your disposal with the hands of my heart. I lay this earthen vessel on the new Testament altar of the consecration sacrifice of worship. You have transformed me from a rebel into a worshiper, so I place my life at your disposal. Surrendering all rights to myself. Submitting myself to be your joyful, willing, loving slave. He's a good master. He's the perfect master. He's the master of amazing grace, marvelous mercy, and astounding love. He came to this old ex-rock and jazz fusion drummer in, of all places, New Orleans. You know you can get saved in New Orleans? came by the gospel through the Spirit. And he came to this slave of sin and bought me. Has he bought you? Have you been redeemed? Have you been converted? Brother Ed, I've been in this church for years. I had a religious experience in the past. I gave a mental assent to some facts about Jesus. I prayed a prayer. I raised a hand when the preacher asked me to. You know what happens when you raise your hand? Only one thing. I realized I didn't put on enough deodorant tonight. Nobody's converted by raising a hand. Oh, but Jesus said, if you profess me before men, I'll profess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. Jesus wasn't talking about a little music at the end of a service. He was talking about professing him before those men. The men out in the world. If you'll profess me before the world, the lost sinners of the world, I'll profess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before the unconverted world, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. How many preachers have manipulated that verse? I'm not asking you to pray the prayer, raise the hand, took a walk. You can take a walk from that back door if you don't repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not redeemed. 
you are still your own. You must repent and believe the gospel. If you have, you're left here to be on mission with him. Actively seeking to take opportunities and make opportunities to proclaim the bad news and the good news. I pray God speaking to you. He's challenging me afresh and anew. I pray he's challenging you. Let's pray together.